dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. So for the last three weeks, we've been in this With God series, and it's an idea that I really hope has challenged you. I hope that it's, it's caused you to grow a little bit. Uh, there's a book called With by an author named Sky Jathani, and, uh, and I, it's, it's been inspirational to kind of get this concept pulled together. I still encourage you to pull it together, uh, to find the book, to read it. The stuff that we've covered in these four weeks will only scratch the surface of the things you can learn from that book, and there's a lot of scripture in that book that you can grow from as well. But it really begins with a question. It's a question I want to pose to all of us this morning. How do you view your relationship with God? How do you view your relationship with God? I mean, on one end, it's like, is it even possible to have a relationship with God? It's a fair question. On the other end, you're like nailing it. I am just out of the park. I'm killing it. But how do you view your relationship with God? More specifically, how do you see how that interaction works? What's your part and what's his part? We've got this, uh, this four postures that we've been talking about that we often take when relating to God. I want to review those. If it's the first time you've heard them, you might want to uh, jot down the notes. But th- these are the four postures that one or more of these postures will be one that most of us have taken with God in our lifetime. The first posture was the life under God posture. And in the life under God posture, we're focused on discovering uh, and obeying the rules of God. That we're under God. God's got like this divine will, and our whole God, is, our whole deal is to like find that out and do it. And our purpose in life is to be right. You gotta be right. You're wrong, so you gotta be right. And so that's the life under God posture. Uh, and we talked about there's some cautions that come with that. There's also some good things that come from that. The second posture we talked about was what we call the life over God posture. And the life over God posture is this posture of saying, you know what? I think if I dig deep enough and I find enough answers, I can like decode how the world works. And we kind of look for these principles that we can live by. And like if I can discover God's principle, maybe it's natural law, maybe it's just something a little bit deeper than that, I can like get to a point where I really don't need God like in my day-to-day stuff. I'm, I live over God. Like I, I just kind of, I understand how God works and so I can move from there. And you can even be in a position where you don't even believe in God and I would say that it's possible that you're living a life over God posture because you've said, I don't need God, but aren't we still looking for and decoding how does life work? How can I win, right? That's the loaf over God posture. That's the second one. The third one is life from God, and this is the posture of saying uh, we're mostly concerned with enjoying the blessings of God. I mean, if you kind of know about God, you think he's like probably pretty powerful. He's got some resources, so how can I get me some of that in my bank account? Like how can I get the gifts of God into my life? And so that's what we live the life from God posture is this posture of saying, If I could just be blessed, and it's the thing where we pray and we pray and we pray, and it's all about how can I, how can I, how can I have what I need? And then the fourth posture uh, is the life for God posture, and in this posture, we're saying this. I think God has given me purpose. I think he's given me a mission, and so my entire goal in life is to just live out that mission. No matter what it takes, I'm going to do, do, do what God wants me 
to do. And so again, there's some good things with that. There's some caution with that. And these four postures, knowing God's will, learning his principles, uh, finding his blessings, or like living out his mission, like all these things are good, but we run the risk of seeking these things and actually missing out on the one thing we started out looking for, which was God. I got his blessings, or I got his mission, or I got his principles, or I got his rules, but like I'm, I missed out on his presence, And so that's where we've been suggesting this fifth posture. The fifth posture is the living life with God posture. That in all that we do, our overarching goal is to discover his presence in our lives and to live in that space and to do what comes from there with God. Uh, For life with God, we also talked about so far two guiding principles or ways that we can find that we're living with God. And so let's review those real quick again too. So then the life with God posture, the first thing we talked about was life with faith. Life with faith. And that was uh, week two of our series. And the idea of life with faith is this. Uh, There's a lot in this world that we can be scared of. Fear was kind of the motivating factor for a lot of what we do. And we, we said, we live in a world that is fundamentally dangerous. Think about all the insurance policies we think we need. Think about all the things we do to protect our family and our kids and our marriages from all the bad guys. Think about the reasons we vote for the things we vote for. Mostly because we just are scared that something else might happen that we don't like. There's a lot of fear. But the concept of fear, of this, this first principle of faith, is that we need to replace fear with faith. Faith says, God, I trust you. I know that you've got this under control. It's going to allow me to worry less. It's going to allow me to trust more. And when we can walk in a posture of faith, we can find ourselves with God. That was the first week. The second week was life with hope. A life with God is a life with faith, and it's a life with hope. And the thing we said about hope is the opposite of hope is, does everybody remember the opposite of hope? Despair. That's right, despair. You hit rock bottom, or you slam against a wall, or you've got your wits in, and you don't know what to do, and despair says there's no way out. There's no way out. We've hit that moment. But hope says, uh-uh, yes, there is. It's not just wishful thinking. It's like, no, I know. I know there's a way out. I saw the door. I heard uh, the person call my name. I saw the light through the space. There is a way out, and because you know there is a way out, it allows you to get through the hardest parts. That's hope. So if we're going to live a life with God, it's a life with faith, it's a life with hope. And then there's a third one. There's three factors in this that we're discussing, and it's this. We've got to live a life with love, a life with love. Today we're talking about love. Love. Woo. It's February, so it's officially the love month. I don't know who decided that. Um, St. Valentine, somebody did. Uh, and, and, you know, do you guys remember in elementary school the, the Valentine's Day thing? And, like, there was this thing, like, your teacher made you make this giant envelope and write your name on it and put stickers on it and hang it on the wall. And then on February 14th, there was a vote to see who was most popular. And so everybody would bring their little Valentine's cards, and they put them in the thing, and whoever got the most things in their envelope, like, everyone likes you the most, right? That's, kind of, that's what I remember from. It was just my, my experience. I often didn't have as many as... As that one kid, I'm not going to say his name. Um, and, uh, no, but you know, and so there's this thing we, we, we do, we do Valentine's Day. Um, I think we learn a lot about love early in life. We see how the parent figures in our life interact, and we're like, okay, that must be what love is. And then as we grow up, we see different things like a disappointing Valentine's Day, or, or we see things like the lyrics we hear in songs, or the messages we see from movies, or the things we see around the world, that this is, this is what love is. Oh, that's what love is. I'm not sure um, 
I'm not, I'm not sure what Valentine's Day is supposed to accomplish. In my mind, it's kind of like a midwinter trick-or-treat, with like, but worse candy. Like, that's kind of where I see Valentine's Day. Um, but I, I do think that it makes us aware of like a burning desire that's inside of all of us. Here's the thing that we know about love, okay? You all know this, I can tell, because you have a brain and a heartbeat, and you've experienced this. Love is complicated. It's actually like a, a relationship status on Facebook. <laughs> it's complicated. Love hurts. It's a lyric. Love can be confusing. Love can be fake. And so we look at love, and we put it up on this pedestal of like this virtue that we all like want to have. But then we hit reality, and we're like, man, but it's complicated. But you know what's interesting? Even though it's complicated, even though it's hard, even though it hurts, what do we all still want? Love. It's weird, isn't it? Like you would think, like if you touch the electric fence enough times, you'd be like, I should probably not touch that fence again. And actually, sadly, that does happen with love. We get burned enough times, like maybe it's not for me. Maybe there's no such thing. Maybe it's not real. In the Bible, we learn a lot about God. We learn about his power. We learn about his creative abilities. Uh, We learn about his divinity. We learn about his desires for us. Uh, A lot of things we talked about in those four postures. We learn about those things. We learn about his blessings. We learn about those things. But if I were to take all of scripture from like cover to cover and boil it down and someone forced me to say like, give me one word to describe what you learn about God, there might be a few. There might be a few to be honest. But one that would rise really high to the top would be love. Because as God tells us about himself, one of the things he wants us to know more than anything else, there's a lot of stuff we can know about God. Most of it we can't even figure out. He's like, I want you to know one thing. I love you. I love you. It's so touchy-feely. It makes a lot of us squirm in our seats and be like, I mean, we're supposed to make eye contact when we talk about this or what? Like, it's uncomfortable. But that's the message God wants us to know about him. I read this passage when we first began, 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. And anyone who has been born of God and knows God, or sorry, anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Love. We look for love in a million places. We look all over the place for love. We look at it in relationships. We look at it in, in, in significance and in jobs. And we want, we want to have all these things. This is what we look for, for love. But John says, listen, love comes from God. So if you want to get like the real deal, you want to get the authentic thing, you got to go to the source. Anybody ever had a, a Philadelphia cheesesteak from Philadelphia? I haven't. So people tell me like, if you, like wow, we need to get out more. I just, I'm like, nope, I, uh, it's the South. We don't leave. Um, but, like, like, if you want a real cheesesteak, there's probably a good place in town that can make one. But, like, you go to Philadelphia, they say, that's the spot. That's where you're going to get that. Uh, I, I haven't had that, but I have had barbecue. And I'm going to tell you where you get good barbecue. In eastern North Carolina. Don't tell me I'm wrong. You have the right to grow in your faith. But... Um, <laughs> Eastern North Carolina, I love, I love it, man. That's the source. That's, you know what I'm saying? And like, okay, maybe we can agree on this. Like, if you want the best taco in Wilmington, where are you going to go? Islands, yes. And if some, somebody else says something else, and then they were like, oh, no, no. <laughs> it's not Taco Bell. I thought it was Taco Bell. No, like, so, like, Wilmingtonians, we're like, Islands is the source for good tacos. So here's my point. When you want the, the real deal, you go to the source for the real deal. And you know what John says? John says, God is love. He says, Love comes from God. 
if there was a love fountain, it would be God. Love is from God. He is the source. John spent a ton of time with Jesus. I'll tell you a little bit about John. John, John was a fisherman that God called into discipleship with him, to follow him. He was a guy who had made plenty of mistakes. As we learned his personality, he kind of had, had a hot temper, and, and things got away from him every now and then. Um, he he kind of he did some things uh, that, that maybe, um, as you looked at John, he wasn't the number one candidate to be trained by a rabbi like Jesus. In fact, the people that were John's age who were going to move on to that level of, of religious training, they were already there. When we meet John, he's already back working with his dad, and that's just a little bit of history on who John is. John had already had his opportunity to kind of take these next steps in his faith, and, and it showed, and in other ways, maybe he, didn't, maybe he didn't measure up. But Jesus met John and said, no, I, I can work with that. I can work with that. And he calls John, he says, look, you be one of my followers, and I will teach you. And here's what John got to do. He got to follow and live with Jesus for over three years. Jesus is God in flesh form. When God puts skin on, that's Jesus. And John got to follow this guy around, live with him, watch him do miracles, perform these signs and wonders, they called it, preach sermons, kneel down next to, uh, to, to people who are dying of incurable diseases and and, and hug a, a prostitute who had been caught in the middle of craziness and discarded by the rest of society and say, no, listen, I can love you. I can show you what it means to be loved by God. You matter to be with families when they lost loved ones and to cry with them. Where was John during all this? Sitting on the front row. And he's watching Jesus. So when he writes this down, he's not like, you know what, I want to start a religion Type, 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 type. No, he's like, let me tell you what I saw. The beginning of 1 John says, these are the things I've seen with my eyes, I heard with my ears. I'm telling you this so that you will know who Jesus is. And so what does he say about Jesus? Man, love. I've seen it. And John takes it a step further. He says in verse nine, not, not only is, is God love, not only is he the source of love, God has gone to great lengths to prove that to us. Verse nine says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us first. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That, that, that means that you know, we have a, a gap between us and God. We have sinned. We have fallen short of those rules we talked about earlier. And the only way to make up for those rules breaking is to receive discipline, punishment, to somehow make things right. We don't have the ability to do that. We're, like, we're in a hole already when it comes to God. But Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. Atonement means to pay for. He's like, I'm, I'm going to pay for that mistake so that you can be with God, do any of you remember your first love? You don't have to raise your hand, but like, and for a lot of us, it might have been like a puppy or a cat, <laughs> but like, I mean, the first like human being that you were like, man, she got cute freckles, and she could play kickball better than all the boys, <laughs> you know, and we, 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 uh, we express our first love in, in a lot of weird and different ways, and boys, we pull hair and throw rocks, and girls, we tattletale and like pretend we're better at everything else, and then we learn later, yes, you are. You are better at everything else, but you don't have to tell us so young, guys. Like, we're fragile. Um, 
But uh, what, what we learn uh, in the Valentine's Day exchange and a lot of other things is, is we start to learn some inconsistencies about love. Like you might have the little girl in your class that you gave like the jelly beans to and you're like, yeah, yeah, this is my true love. But then all the jelly beans are gone and she has moved on to Tommy who has more jelly beans. And you're like, I'm going to fight Tommy by the oak tree. That's what's going to happen now because he had more jelly beans. And, that, and, and we learn this thing and we see that from our parents, we see it from other people in our life, we see it from leaders in our country, we learn this. We learn this very damaging thing about love. Love apparently seems temporary. Like, that was fun. Oh, that wasn't fun anymore. And we walk away from it. Have you experienced that? I have. Now, here's the thing. That is, that is our capacity as humans to love, is that we're pretty good at it until we're not. And that we're better with some people than others. But what I've learned is, is that we learned this lesson, and it's a lie, but it's a lesson we learned, and that is that love is temporary. More specifically, that love is conditional. Like as long as things are going a certain way, it's fine. But as soon as it's not going a certain way anymore, it's not fine anymore, and, and, we, and we bail. And maybe we'll stick it out a little bit longer than somebody else would because we've got grit or because we, we're really trying to be selfless in love. But we get to a point where like, I just can't take it anymore. And sadly, we see that more and more and more. And, and that's a lie about love, guys. That's not, that's not full love. Now, I, won't, I don't want to beat us all up. We're, we're limited. We are limited in a lot of ways. And so we do the best we can. And I believe that we love people fully the best we can. But here's the truth about God's love. God's love is not temporary. It's permanent. And God's love is unconditional. It says this in verse 10. We just read it. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Who loved first, us or God? God. How did he show that? He sent his son to help pay the price for our sin and to reunite us with him. And so listen to what God's saying. He's like, listen, I know you. I know your past. I know your present. I know your future. I've known you at your best, but I've known you at your worst. But I still love you. It's said another way in Romans chapter 8. This is a powerful verse in one sentence. Well, yeah. It's got a colon in the middle, so it's like some sentence fragments and stuff. I'm not going to get into grammar. Verse 8 of Romans chapter 5. This is what the, the author is, Paul. He's an apostle. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And while we were sinners, while we were sinners, while we were still at our worst, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's unconditional. There's no strings attached. God just wants to be with us. We haven't earned God's love. We don't deserve God's love. Even our best attempt at goodness is like a dark corner compared to God's bright holiness. Yet he doesn't turn his back on us. I love you. I accept you. And I've got a gift for you. And the gift for you is that I will give you grace in the times when you're weak. I will give you forgiveness in the areas that you need it. And I want you to be united with me, the creator of the universe. How about that deal? And there's nothing that you can do or have to do to pay me back. I just love you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is in the New Testament of the Bible. Corinthians is a book that was written by the Apostle Paul. 
and it was originally written as a letter. Uh, he was writing to this group of people in a city called Corinth, and it's in like modern-day Greece. And, but the Corinthians were a group of people who were in desperate need of unconditional love because they were jacked up. If you read First and Second Corinthians, you're like, oh, that sounds just like America. Sweet. And so that's kind of like what's going on in Corinth. It's like there's just a mess of all kinds of stuff that Paul's having to deal with. The good news is, despite their brokenness, someone had established a Christian church in Corinth. And so these letters are what Paul's writing in to say, listen, here's some teaching about what we know about Jesus and how you can live your life and how the church can operate and all that kind of stuff. And so he's writing this letter, and he says all kinds of great stuff. In the previous chapter and leading up to that, Paul encourages the readers, and he says, listen, because you're with God, you can be part of some amazing things. I'm telling you. You can be part of amazing things. You can be part of life change. You can be part of going in and changing community. You can be, if you read chapter 12, you just talk about the giftedness of the Spirit and how you can play a role in the kingdom of God. You can, you can, you can. There's all these things I've got for you. And he gets to the end of chapter 12 and you're looking at it like, whoo, we could charge the hill now. Like, we're ready. We got all these skills. We got all these giftedness. We got God's Holy Spirit with us. And then in chapter 13, Paul slams on the brakes, skirt, and says, but listen, you can do some really amazing things with God. God has given you some abilities, but if you don't love, it's all a waste. Ouch. Let's read 1 Corinthians, I mean, first, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 1. He said, man, if I speak in tongues of men or angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You're just making noise, man. Preach all you want to. Who cares? You don't love people. Doesn't make a difference. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, I can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. How about this? What if I give all my possessions to the poor and I give over my body to the hardships so much that I can boast about it, but I haven't loved? I gain nothing. I started with this question. How do you view your relationship with God? And there's a lot of ways we measure that. But without love, it's nothing because God is love. We're going to finish 1 Corinthians 13 in a minute because, to be very honest, it's just too good to skip today. We're going to finish it, but we're going to pause right there because there's some more things I want, to, I want to return to. We talked about the four postures of God. I want to go over those one more time because I, I believe after really being in this for about three months myself now and looking at these four different postures that if we're honest with ourselves, we can identify one or two of these postures that we live in a lot. And then in each of these postures, there's a big, huge danger that in those postures, we begin to see ourselves in such a way where we, like, alienate ourselves from the love of God and the ability to love others. It's a little bit scary, depending on how deep you are in the different postures, but let's look at them. So each one's going to show the posture, and then there's going to be like a, a line on the end with a blank. And so the line on the end with the blank is going to be how we view ourselves. And then I'll reveal the blank. The first one is our first posture. Maybe you see your relationship with God as life under God. Remember, this is where we're looking for the rules of God. I'm just trying to be right. I got to be right. That's the number one component of, my, component of my spiritual journey is to be right. And especially to be more right than someone else. And so if I'm at least more right than them, at least I know that I'm at least this much closer to God. And we really work for that. And look, there's some good stuff in that. There's some good things like I'm getting into God's word, like I really understand. Listen, if we really believe that God wants the best for us, then probably the rules he gave us are a good idea to follow. But if my number one desire is only to follow the rules, if that's what your image of God is, it affects our ability to, 
experience God's love and to be with him because this is how we begin to see ourselves. We begin to see ourselves like this. I am a sinner. Now, you may have grown up in a church tradition or you may talk about it all the time. There's a lot of Christians you walk around with and the phrase you might hear the most is, we are sinners. That is a true sentence, okay? But if you wear a name tag, hello, my name is sinner, and you have been introduced to God and you know the forgiveness of Jesus, my question is, how much time do you spend thinking of yourself as a sinner versus how much time you think of Jesus as a savior? His ability to overcome our sin is way bigger than our nasty brokenness. And so if we get stuck in this life under God posture, we run the risk of only seeing how we've got to be more right than we are. Because then when we fail, we got to go with our head down and be like, I messed up. I guess I'm worthless again. And that's not how God sees us when we've been redeemed by Jesus. That's the life under God posture, and that's the danger of how we might see ourselves. The second one is this. What about the life over God posture? In the life over God posture, from this vantage point, basically God is an abstract concept. I mean, you might say you believe in God even, but it's like, eh. But basically, I'm good on my own because, like, I got some really good investment principles, so I'm going to take care of my future. And I've got the ability to, like, we've been to marriage counseling, so I can probably learn how to love my family and, like, this kind of stuff. Like, if I can understand the principles of God, I, I'm, I don't really, really need God that much. I mean, I'm part of a church because, after all, I mean, like, they talk about good things and social issues are good to be part of. And who doesn't want to be part of love? Christians talk a lot about love. That's great. But in the over-God posture, we begin to identify ourselves as this. I am a manager. God has given us this palette of things to manage. Again, true story, he has. But as long as I manage that perfectly or the best I can, I'm good. We run that risk, and in the end, we might miss out on the biggest thing. Because what happens, what happens when the bottom falls out and we don't understand the principle, where, where can we even lean for comfort? God's spirit is there to comfort us, but if we're like, oh, wait, that's not on the list of principles I've uncovered, and that's super spiritual, so I mean, that's kind of weird. It makes me feel uncomfortable. That's the life over God posture, and he's made us more than just managers of his principles. Here's the third posture that we wrestle with. Maybe you tend to see yourself in this third one, in that life from God posture. In this image of God, here's the way we start to see ourselves. Honestly, I think it's how God may see you or how others can see you. You might not be honest enough to see yourself this way. But it says, I am a consumer. After all, God does want to bless me. So we see this a lot in Christian circles about how much people hop from church to church. Because it's like, man, they got better preaching over there, but they got killer children's programming over here. And I love how they love the community over here. And that's great. But there's hundreds of great churches in Wilmington. I'm not sure that God is trying to get a big spreadsheet to see who's winning. I don't think that's at all the case. One king in one kingdom, same savior. We can't just be consumers of the church, and we can't just be consumers of the blessings of God. We've got to get to a point where we grow beyond that. And we say, God, it's not your blessings you, I want. It's, it's you that I want. That's what I want. I want your presence. I want your love. I want your, oh, your, your, your acceptance of my life. I want to know that, because here's what happens if we're consumers. What happens when what we pray for doesn't come true? 
What happens when our bank account isn't what we thought it should be? What happens if our marriage isn't as strong? I mean, if the principle is, if I'm doing things right, God will bless me. What happens when things aren't going well? Did, did God, like, decide to hate you now? You might believe that, but that's not true. It's not true. In fact, what I've learned is the opposite. First of all, Jesus tells us there will be troubling times. You will experience suffering. You will experience persecution. You will experience pain. Nowhere in that is Jesus like, and at the end you get a, a, a birthday cake with rainbows on it. Like, it doesn't say that. It's just like, sometimes it's going to be hard. But it doesn't mean that God has left you. What I have found to be true is that it is God's love that carries you through those times. When everything else falls apart and all the blessings are absent and all you're left with is, do I have the presence of God in my life or not? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now where you're at the bottom. You're like, I feel like it's empty down here. I, I got to encourage you. Work on living a life in faith. Work on discovering hope. And that can happen in community. We're doing this together. Faith and hope. And it makes us aware of God's love. And then when the blessings fall apart, you can make it. I see some heads nodding because y'all, you know. <laughs> Let's not be consumers. Lastly, um, maybe you see your life as living life for God. And I told you before, this is probably the one I fall in most often. You know, it's like there's this mission. I've got a purpose. I've got to go, 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 go. Do, do, do. There's all these things that we do. And, and in this posture, we begin to identify ourselves. I am a servant. That seems pretty good. We should be servants, right? And again, this is also, it's a good thing. We're, su- we're supposed to be servants, But here's the problem that happens, and this is what I've experienced too often. What happens when you drop the ball on the mission? Man, I got this friend I've been talking to, and I've just been really feeling that God's calling me to, like, I don't know, share the message of God's love with this person. Like, actually just talk to them about my faith, and then I chicken out. Know what I did? Failed the mission. I should have read my Bible more this week, but I didn't because I was busy and it was hard. And actually, that's been true for about six months or years. It's been a while since I've been in the Bible, you know, and you get to that point where you're like, but, oh, I failed, God. I was supposed to be in there so I could know more about, about what to do. And you get to this place where you're like, I don't do enough. I don't do enough for God. What, where do we experience God's love in that? Because really, if you fail on the mission and your only focus is to live out the mission, you have no choice again but to walk to God with your head down like, you know, I'm a failure. But you know what we learned from Jesus? We learned that even in that failure, even in those moments where we totally missed the mark, we should be able to walk to the Lord, head held high and say, but thank you for loving me anyway. I'm glad your mercies are new every morning. I'm gonna try that. That's what grace is. Now, in all four of these postures, there are good things. We should know the rules of God. We should do our best to follow them. We should do our best to unpack the godly principles. After all, he gave them to us. And so when we unpack the principles, we should live those things. He's going to bless. That's what he does. But that's not the reason we seek him. He's got a mission for you. He's got a purpose for you. But that is not the sole reason he exists. 
So we find this fifth posture, and this is what we begin to know. In the life with God posture, this is the name tag we can wear. I am loved, period. Doesn't that feel so much better? Hey, can you carry that? Can you, can you take this from here and go to work tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah, and then you can go live on the mission, and then you can have your eyes open for the blessing, and then you can be looking for the rules and work on impairing our morality and our ability to, to be more approachable to God, you know, and like to have the holiness that God wants us to have. But love is at the core of who God is. Let's finish 1 Corinthians 13. So what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And love never fails. It's not conditional. It's not temporary. But where there are prophecies, these are the things we like. Hey, we can do all these things for God. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will all pass away. The stuff of this earth is temporary. There's something bigger, there's something deeper than that. For we are known in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. God has this ability to show us the fullness of, of what we can be and who he is, and he's got something so much bigger even than the earth he's given us. This reminds me of my Valentine's Day stories. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And so now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. In his book, Sky Jathani, the book that we've been using to kind of spearhead this idea, he tells this story that I want to read to you as we close. It comes from another true story that's entitled, From Beverly Hills to Mexican Jail. Tijuana's notorious La Mesa prison contains 6,000 of Mexico's worst criminals, drug lords, murderers, ferment with anger behind bars and fences. But when the tiny figure of an 80-year-old nun appears, the men are transformed. Mama, mama, they shout as they reach out their hands through the fence to touch her. Some are brought to tears at the sight of the matriarch that they call Mother Antonia. How are you, my sons, she replies. And she'll spend the afternoon praying with them, counseling them to ask their victims for forgiveness, ensuring, them that, they have, ensuring that they have medicine and clean water, and at the end of the day, Mother Antonia will not leave the prison. She will return to the tiny cell that she has inhabited for more than 30 years alongside her sons. Mother Antonia brings hope to the men and women here, said the warden, Francisco Jimenez. And they find hope in them, themselves. She spreads the love of God. Let me introduce you to this lady. There's a picture you can put on the screen. Before entering La Mesa in 1977, Mother Antonia was Mary Brenner Clark, a blonde Beverly Hills socialite, married twice, divorced twice, the mother of seven. By the age of 44, Mary's life was transformed. 
Her deep communion with God had resulted in an unyielding compassion for the poor and the wounded. When her children were grown, she sensed God's calling to serve in the forgotten prisoners of Tijuana. She sold her possessions and drove across the border to take up residence in La Mesa. Mary's oldest son was not surprised by her move. He said, the greatest gift my siblings and I had was that our mom was on loan from God to raise us. But now she's going to take care of the rest of the world. Apart from counseling the inmates, Mother Antonia became a critical link between the guards and the prisoners. She advocated for peace and humane treatment, and she reached out to the families of both the inmates and the guards. The most vulnerable of the inmates she took care of, and they became especially close to her. One inmate said, uh, Mother Antonia is the most important person here, like everyone matters the most. Despite the remarkable transformation at the prison since Mother Antonia had taken up residence, La Mesa remained a very dangerous place. And so in September of 2008, a riot broke out in the prison where she was not, when she was not inside. The 82-year-old arrived at the scene to find that the electric, electricity had been cut off and the prison was surrounded by soldiers trying to contain the violence. The prisoners had taken hostages. Fires had been started inside, and one witness said bullets were flying everywhere. But Mother Antonia approached the police outside the prison and said, let me go in. I know I can do something to stop the violence. And the authorities refused, fearing for her safety. I'm not afraid, she responded. When you love, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Love casts out fear. The Bible tells us that, and I love the men there. I can go into the cells and see the men and pray for them and bring them hope. That doesn't mean I'm in accord with them. That doesn't mean I'm not going to show them what's wrong and try to calm something down. It just doesn't stop me from loving them. They let her in. Mother Antonia entered the darkness and found an inmate. She fell to her knees and she begged him, please end this riot. It's not right that you're locked up in here. You're hungry, you're thirsty, but we can take care of those things. But this is not the way to do it. I will help make it better, but first you have to give me the guns. I beg you, put down your weapons. Mother, he replied, as soon as we heard your voice, we dropped the guns out the window. True story. Life with God. It's a life with faith, a life with hope, a life with love. Faith teaches us that we can trust God. He will not drop us. We don't have to fear. Building faith takes incremental steps. And you might be in a place today where that's what you need to begin doing. That's fine. That's what we're here for. Keep coming back. We've got a class coming up in a couple of weeks called Venture Basics. It'll help answer some of your questions about God and Jesus and the Bible. So be listening out for that. Maybe that's a way you can grow your faith. Keep listening to, to teaching. Let someone show you some places in the Bible you can read. That's faith. And you can grow it. Hope. It's the anchor of our faith. It's the opposite of despair. Despair says there's no way out, but hope says there is a way out. Jesus has provided a way out. And living a life in hope is living a life with God. And love, God is love. Love is from God. Knowing his love and loving him back and treating others with his love is living life with God. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love. 